This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Robe Imbriano, the creator and executive producer of Amend, the fight for America. Amend is the blockbuster Netflix limited series hosted by Will Smith about the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Also, I'll discuss the brand new 2020 census results. This country is a changing. And now, The Nexus. Rob Imbriano is a writer, director, and producer based in Brooklyn. He is known for his work at the Constitution Project, ABC News, CBS News, and the Oprah Winfrey Show. Most recently, Robe was the co-executive producer of Soul of a Nation on ABC and the creator and executive producer of the acclaimed Netflix limited series Amend, The Fight for America, which may be streamed now. On a personal note, Robe was one of my esteemed professors at Columbia Journalism School. <laughs> so great to see you wow. doing well, Professor, and welcome to the Nexus. Uh, man, this makes me so happy that we connect this way. I, it, it's actually thrilling to, to be here and talk to you like this. <laughs> well, Amend is a six-part series that is the story of the horrible conditions that led to the 14th Amendment, how people tried to go around it many times, and how it has triumphed in situations ranging from civil rights to women's rights to gay marriage to immigration. Hosted by Will Smith, Amend features a multitude of famous faces to explain how we got to where we are. Amend is remarkable in many ways, and one way is how you boil down a complex constitutional amendment and not only make it palatable to viewers, but also enjoyable. It's adding panache to the kind of documentary you might have been forced to watch when we were in high school. So, Robe, how did the idea of Amend come about? Well, I, you know, it's really interesting because um, it, I have been doing these scholastic um uh, films about the Constitution uh, called The Constitution Project, and they were high school films, really. Uh, and we were trying to update the idea of, um, you know, schoolhouse rock, but make them apply for the curriculum. Uh, and we just didn't want them to be boring. And I learned about the 14th Amendment by doing those because I'm not a lawyer. Um, and uh, when I discovered uh, what the 14th Amendment was, you know, well into my professional career, I was flabbergasted. I, how could I not know? How could all of us not know this? Um, and I thought about trying to do a series immediately. And really, it sort of gestated for about 10 years. Um, and when I was finally ready, knew what I wanted to do and, and, and how I wanted to tell the story, uh, I went into Tom Yellen, who uh, was is still running the documentary group uh, out of New York. That's where I was doing the Constitution films, and I I said to him, I, you know, I'd like to do a six part series on the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and his reaction was priceless. Great. What's the Fourteenth Amendment? <laughs> 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 and you know, but Tom is 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 really curious and brilliant and adventurous and immediately understood uh, the gravity of this and also how remarkable it was that most Americans don't know. 
So we had done a project uh, a few years earlier with Will, and we approached Will and and uh, Will's team, and they also instantly got this notion of you know telling the story of the origins of equality in the Constitution. Um, it's it's kind of amazing, you know, <clears throat> when you talk to potential distributors. Um, the interest in doing a six-part series on the 14th Amendment isn't really very strong. But when you talk to them about doing a six-part series with Will Smith, then you get people leaning in. Mm. Uh, and the fact that Will was so engaged from the very start uh, really made it easy. So uh, that's how we that's how we got it. We got to Netflix, and and you know it was a little. Uh, back and forth and and what is this really and what's it going to be and how's this going to work and what are we going to see and you know and and once we convinced them you know to their satisfaction uh that uh that we actually had a plan uh it was a go i mean so it sounds like will smith was the the linchpin here in a lot of ways if if you had not gotten him involved would this have not gotten off the ground is that what you're thinking you know, it's I I never want to say that it never would have been done, but it never would have been done like this. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, having Will and having most of all having Will support, uh, having you know his his uh, personal interest in in this, you know, and having his team uh, also uh, Jamal Watson and uh, Jana Babatunde Bay over there. Um, they, they were drivers of this, you know, making sure that he, uh, you know, was updated and, and, and had the information that he needed. Uh, and, you know, when you have someone, uh, like him who, you know, he, there's no one like him, you know, he's, he's very unique. Uh, he has a unique standing in our society. Um, you know, he comes at you with integrity and he comes at every project with integrity and you feel it and you understand that, you know, he's, he's not trying to put something over on you. You know, he, he means what he says and that goes a, a long way when you're trying to retell the, you know, the, the basic American story. And just to finish on his note, what was it like? working with him I and mean, was he um around a lot was he one of those things where i always am curious was he just there a couple of days to tape his parts how, how does that work with him you know i it's it, I've, I've worked i've had the, the the great pleasure of working with people um who are very very busy uh, and very, very famous, um, Peter Jennings, Oprah Winfrey, um, you know, Will. And, and what you have to do is you have to really make the best use of their time. Um, <clears throat> you have to get their input from the very start. You have to keep them, you know, apprised of how things are going along the way so that, you know, they understand they're, they're not parachuting into something that they have no idea what it, what it is that they're doing. Um, that it ma maintains, you know, some, um, some thread of, of what, you know, they think the project was from the very start. Uh, and it's consistent with what they believe and what they understand the project to be. Uh, so that when they do come back into the project, um, you know, it, 
it still um, is is up to their standard and still retains the sort of uh, you know principles, ideas, stories that that they bought into from the very start. So with someone like Will, you know, talking to him at the very beginning to make sure you understood, you know, the personal ramifications, you know, of the story that you were telling was really important. Uh, and that actually happened, I would say, a solid year before, you know, we, we ever sold it to Netflix. Um, Larry Wilmore came in <clears throat> and he engaged with Will quite a bit as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we always had an open channel will and so that by the time uh we shot will's pages you know will was was totally on board knew exactly what the deal was uh had a lot of input into it and then you know he came back around at the end uh as we were putting cuts together and had a lot of notes just like the rest of us uh only his notes are never just like the rest of ours uh take his notes, his notes a little bit more seriously uh, they have a little bit more weight and, um, you know, but it was, it was, it was all good. And, uh, I think the results you see is, you know, the, the result of all the effort to keep this as seamless as possible. Yeah. Well, he's definitely a, an effervescent animated you know, committed host. I mean, that, that comes through clear. I mean, I think I used to remember they called him Mr. July in the past where, you know, because he was in, I believe eight movies in a row that made a hundred million or more. So, I mean, you really can't ask for a more yeah. bankable star. I mean, I, he may literally be, literally be the most bankable star ever. I, I I'd have to check I, that, but it's, it's something yeah. like that. So kudos to that, but about the, the themes of the show, I, I mean, it, it, I think it's pretty obvious, but in your words, why is this series vital now? You know, I, the 14th Amendment, it, it took a, a civil war uh, to change the country, and the 14th Amendment was designed to put that change in the Constitution. It was basically designed to uh, have us live up to the Declaration of Independence and our principle that all men and all people are equal. Um, you know, and that is, that is the fight that we've been fighting ever since. There is not a moment since the 14th Amendment went into the Constitution that it has not been the most central fight of, of this country, right? So its relevance never wanes. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> the, it, this is, this is how relevant <laughs> it is remained. I did those, uh, initial interviews, uh, for the project. Uh, at the end of 2018, mm-hmm. um, you know, and this aired in February of 2021. Uh, and, you know, we definitely made some adjustments and, and, you know, did some, some updated interviews, but those were essentially the interviews that carried the series. And that's because this remains as relevant on a day-to-day basis uh, because this defines us. This, this struggle defines us and it, it, you know, it just, it's more of the same. Um, and once we decided to make it about principles and connect the history to the principles and, and actions of today, uh, you know, it, it became somewhat evergreen. Uh, even though the, the circumstances and details change every day, the principles don't. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's it couldn't come out at a more vital time, and it it couldn't be 
speaking to our country, our world um, at a better time. So it's, it was really stirring watching that, but I'm, I am curious. I think a lot of folks are curious. Um, They see the finished product. It's up on Netflix. They're scrolling. There it is. They, they often have little to no idea about the amount of work already. You've been saying this, this was germinating for, for several years. And even the discussions with Will Smith were a, a year in advance or more, but can you break down how this production comes together? I mean, what, what, what do you do first? What do you do after that? How does it go from start to finish in a simple way? Uh, well, I mean, the thing about this is that it, we, we really did try to do something different. Um, so there wasn't really a template for it, right? You know, this, this notion of taking um, 150 years of history, uh, doing both historical and contemporary storytelling, um, storytelling that involves different groups. You know, usually groups remain in silos, right? There's the Black storytelling silo. There's the Latinx storytelling silo. There's the, you know, women's storytelling silo, the LGBTQ silo. We put all of those in, in the same silo, right? We put all of those in the one American story because this is truly something that connects us all. And to take something that large uh, over the course of six episodes that spans 150 years and also trying to boil it down to its most essential storytelling um, with its most essential elements with actual actors performing on camera and animation, um, you know, if, if there's a template for it, I haven't seen it. So, and we didn't work from one. Um, so a lot of this was us trying to figure figure out things as as we went along. And you know, I say we um, because, as you know, uh, you know, media, film, visual storytelling, uh, filmmaking is is the most collaborative uh, medium that there is. Right? Of course. You know, it, there, it's not one person doing this. And it drives me crazy to hear, you know, directors and such when they talk about, I did this, I did that, I did, you know, please. It took somebody, you know, at the very top of their game, you know, to allow you to do something that could be at the very top of its game. So every step along the way, I needed, you know, a team of incredible researchers, you know, who did phenomenal work i needed you know a dp who did amazing work i needed you know producers and story producers and editors and makeup people you know hair and makeup people to like really bring their very best to all of this you know gaffers who built you know dollies to save us you know expense and time and did incredible work like there's just so much that went into this. Um, so I, I, it, it would literally take me, you know, weeks of writing that, you know, this down to, to, to detail it. But <laughs> let me just, I, I, I'll just break it down. Like we did five weeks of interviews in New York, uh, with most of our, uh, we call them storytellers, not experts, because we really cast people who knew their stuff but also could really tell stories. 
uh, and everybody brought it. You know, some of those interviews were day-long interviews. You know, uh, David Blight and Sherilyn Eiffel and Martha Jones and, you know, Garrett Epps. I mean, you know, I had people in the chair for hours upon hours, um, you know, and that was like a Broadway run. Every day, all day, we would do these interviews. I would do these interviews. And, you know, it was a situation where um, we would have different people from different episodes or some people who were covering different episodes, multiple episodes, you know, coming in. And we would have to make sure that we really had, you know, prepared, you know, how we were going to interview them and make sure that we were, you know, um, uh, talking directly to our stories. In fact, many of those folks I had spent a lot of time with designing the project before we we ever got to uh, the interview process so that we were all on board with the story that we were going to tell. They all knew coming in what the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and, you know, then we did five weeks of performances in L.A. Uh, and it was like another Broadway run where we had, you know, Rahershal Ali just utterly brilliant, you know, coming in to do Frederick Douglass. And we such incredible fortune to have gotten him uh he had worked with our director kenny leon uh in a play earlier and people have so much respect for kenny uh that you know many of them came just to work with him for a day um Mahershala had so much uh to do that that he actually asked if he could come back for a couple of days you know to film all the material that that he had and and <laughs> when when he's asking for more time it's like yeah man absolutely um so you know i was it was it was really it was incredible because um people understood the 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 magnitude of the thing that we were trying to accomplish you know that we're really trying to retell the story of america in in a in a much more accurate and expansive and inclusive way and they all brought their best selves to it. And, you know, I mean, everyone, you know, Bobby Cannavale, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Samira Wiley, like all of these incredible people, Diane Lane, you know, it just, the list goes on and on and on and on. Sam Jackson, Lena Waithe. I mean, it's really, we, every moment of that, we couldn't believe, you know, the folks who were bringing it. Um, and they all came like ready. So that was incredible. And once you have this mix of these phenomenally brilliant you know uh storytellers with these radiant actors um really bringing it it's like you've got the best chocolate and the best peanut butter there is right now you just gotta put it together and make that work so how did you did. choose the actors though i'm curious it's like was it a thing where a casting person just made suggestions or did you have people you said you had in mind i all of, i believe all diane Lane. Hmm? All of, yeah, the all of the above. Yeah. You know, I mean, because we, we, we had, um, you know, fortunately with, uh, Larry and Will and, uh, you know, some of our other folks, we had relationships with people, yeah. Kenny, you know, and, and some of it was, we had a casting director because, you know, it was just more efficient, you know, to, to go through them and they were brilliant and they worked really hard. And, you know, so like we had a, a, a group of folks, who were making calls, you know, uh, diligently um, and finding folks, you know, who we thought would really like be just right for these roles. 
Uh, and we were incredibly lucky, you know, that, that, um, you know, we, we got the folks that we wanted and the folks we wanted, you know, came in and they really wanted to be there. So it was just a beautiful combination of all of it. Hmm. Incredible. And I have to give a shout out to Mark Ingram, who is a mm-hmm. good friend of mine based in LA who edited the women's equality and marriage equality episodes. So fantastic. Fantastic. We had, um, these terrific teams, uh, first on the East Coast and then, you know, Netflix and the, the way a lot of organizations do it. We, we brought stuff out to the West Coast and, uh, under Angus Wall and his team over at Make Make, uh, you know, along with the folks of the documentary group. You know, I, we really got the best of the best of the best on this thing and it shows. Mm, incredible. Um, and so what has the reaction to the series been like? I mean, has, I'll ask that first, then I have a follow-up about that. But what 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 is the general reaction from the world, the media, people that you've been getting? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I was worried um, a little bit that, you know, we would get caught up in that backlash about, you know, uh, and, and this is still going on. This is very fresh, you know, about that people are upset about, um, you know, a, a more extant, uh, expansive approach to American storytelling. Uh, you know, the 1619 project got a lot of backlash over, over, but, you know, David Blight, uh, put it out there. Um, one of the things that he touched upon in remarking about the series was that it's, it's good history. And, you know, we had, because we had people like David and we had people like Eric Foner and people like Christopher Bonner, you know, to make sure that we were getting the stuff right. You know, so I, we, we haven't had that kind of backlash and I was, I was ready for that, but we haven't had it and, or at least not enough of it to make any, any sort of impression. Um, what I am surprised at, I think is, um, you know, we, we were hoping that, uh, it would touch people and move people and shift the conversation somewhat. And the people who have seen it and a lot of the organizations who've seen it, people have brought it to, you know, their workplaces. They brought it to, you know, their vocational places. We've heard from corporations and different branches of government and, you know, um, uh, schools and different places that want to use this and want to make it part of, you know, their regular, um, uh, either curriculum or awareness or training or, you know, so we, we've really had, um, some very passionate buy-in, which has made me very, very happy. Uh, and, you know, we know with these things, um, something like this <clears throat> is not designed to be like, uh, I think, you know, our guy will, right? You know, he, he comes in and he lights the box office on fire and, you know, boom, you know, like you've got a, you know, billion dollar, you know, um, marketable thing, you know, in, in, in the course of a weekend or two, this is more of a slow burn, right? You've got six episodes that you've got to make it through and, you know, uh, and people are doing it and they're doing it and it's growing and it's really amazing to see even a couple of months, you know, after it's been out there, 
you know, it's like, it seems to be growing and people are still calling. People are trying to find out how to, you know, how to use it and and how to, how to share it and how to, um, uh, use it within their corporations and, and, and schools and things like that. So it's, it's on track to be what we really had hoped it would be. And that's really exciting. Yeah. I really like the balance of the actors, the performances, but also the historians. I mean, I have a, I have a degree in journalism, as you know, and I have a degree in uh, advanced degree in journalism, advanced degree in American history. So I actually had Eric mm-hmm. Foner as well um, yeah. as a professor back in the day. And you know, when you have someone like him and David Blight from Yale and, you know, the many others who are historians there's a seal of approval there that, as you said, the history Mm -hmm. is good and that adds an authenticity that's unbeatable in my opinion. Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, no, I, and, and that really was something, you know, one of the pressures of producing something like this, uh, you know, that is going to be fronted by someone like Will is you want to make sure that, you know, you're not wasting the opportunity. And, you know, having people like that, you know, uh, Martha Jones and Mary Frances Berry and, you know, some of the folks, you know, who, who are really bringing, you know, the history to it, as well as the younger activists. And, you know, I mean, Brittany Pagnett Cunningham and Brie Newsom and, you know, having um, uh, Khalil Muhammad, like all of these incredible people, you know, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, I, I, I can't even stop. Like once I start, like, you know, it's just, they all keep coming back and, you know, it, Kimberly Crenshaw, I was like, you, 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 you know, everywhere you look, you just have these remarkable, remarkable people, Nancy Norris and Jeannie Sugerson. And, you know, it's just, it goes on and on and on. Emily Bazelon. And so, you know, Melissa Murray and Michelle Abs, like it, they're just, remarkable people and they have done remarkable work i mean you know um so you you once you get those people in a room um telling the same american story that is something that i i I hope really can't be ignored um and you know i i if i had a disappointment right now it's that you know i don't understand really quite why um, you know, the New York Times hasn't touched it yet, mm. uh, or the New Yorkers hasn't seemed to have found it yet. Um, you know, but I'm hoping that they will, because, you know, it is just the, the, the feat of getting all these people on board on this one project, I think is, is pretty remarkable and, and says something about the importance of the topic. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, another thing I thought was really cool about Amend was, how the first three episodes were very fast paced, lots of history, lots of time to cover, really quick cuts and exciting in its own right to see that stuff. Um, The fourth episode, which was the um, women's equality episode was more of a palate cleanser in a way it felt. And I felt Mm -hmm. like then the fifth episode was the 
best, in my opinion, in terms of storytelling and just overall, because that was the marriage equality episode with the Obergefell situation, which honestly, mm. I did not know much about. I did not know anything about, mm. for those who watched, I don't want to spoil too much about it, but, you know, a, a couple uh, who, a, a gay couple who had um, gotten married and then had trouble with that in the courts prior to the Supreme Court rulings in 2015 and eventually took their case all the way to the Supreme Court and, as we know, succeeded. But the how you got to that point was a marvel in storytelling, in, and, and kudos to you for that. Well, and, and you know, to the, to the entire team. But, you know, when um, I reached out to Jim uh, and asked him if he'd be willing to do this, you know, he said, he said, yes. And we were going to, uh, to have lunch. And I think it was the day before we had lunch, Justice Kennedy announced his resignation. Mm. Um, and we all understood immediately what that could mean for the decision. Uh, and for the LGBTQ community, because Justice Kennedy was, in fact, a champion uh, for equal dignity and for those rights, um, you know, in some ways. Uh, and so we had lunch. We 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 discussed it. Uh, Jim was incredibly generous and uh, brought in, uh, um, you know, Curtis, who was John's brother, and. Uh, uh, Tootie, who is uh, you know, John's aunt and just a remarkable human being and storyteller. And those and Al, his lawyer, um, and they were all so incredibly forthcoming and uh, emotionally honest uh, about it that, you know, <laughs> at one point, I think it was particularly with Aunt Tootie, who uh, just had us all on on the edge of our seat the entire interview. Uh, at one point, she was telling a story, and she had everyone crying to the point where I looked over at Eric Lynn, who who is our DP, and he's he's wiping tears out of his eyes, and I'm like, Eric, Eric, are we in focus? <laughs> 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 Can you see what's going on, man? Because it was so emotional. But that, you know, the that was always sort of the rock of our contemporary storytelling. Um, uh, and we we knew we had one hour that we really wanted to be present and show how the 14th Amendment uh, continues to affect our lives on a daily basis. Mm, incredible. And I guess... Lastly, about amend the 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 segments that most resonated for me overall were the obscure people I had never known about, like Bayard Rustin, a black civil rights leader who happened to be gay, uh, or even someone I had studied a long time ago, but really don't hear much of nowadays. And that's Ida B. Wells. I mean, what was it a yeah. conscious effort to highlight those folks? Absolutely, <clears throat> the. Um the the subtext of all of this 
was, and and this is where, excuse me, this is where the storytelling gets, you know, I, I would call it expansive and inclusive, but really what it is, is it's just telling the story of the agency of the people who, who were the most vulnerable and had to fight for these rights. Hmm. Like these rights were not rights that were simply given to people. These rights were rights that were fought for. And those stories had not been told. And, you know, that is, that is the, the, the core uh, storytelling ethos of the American story, right? We, we, we fought a revolution for our rights, but then we don't tell that story about how we had to really continue to fight for those rights, you know, from, from the people who were left out of, of that, you know, in, in the initial constitution. So telling that story, uh, which is a, core American story was, was, was absolutely central to, you know, the, the mission of Amend. Hmm. Incredible. Um, and what, let's just for a moment, talk a little bit about your background. I mean, you obviously before this have an extensive experience in the news and documentary world. How did you get involved with all of it? Accidentally. Is that right? <laughs> no, it's not really. No, it's not. It's not. Um, no, my my father was a journalist uh, uh, for uh, Long Island Newsday and then a, a magazine called Black Enterprise. Um, and so I grew up watching the news. I grew up, you know, following stories and news. And um, but I, I was kind of, I'm not a great journalist. You know, I mean, you, you, you have to, um, or at least years ago when I was coming up, it required, you know, uh, an objectivity that I found to be somewhat artificial and, um, you know, rules that, that, uh, I think are in some ways really important. And in some ways I think, um, uh, you know, are not very organic to me. So I, I'm more of a storyteller um, and I find personal stories to be uh, where, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not an investigative reporter, um, but I do love history and I love personal storytelling. So, you know, this, this was sort of a, a, a labor of love for me, you know, to go back and find those voices and hear those voices, you know, from people like Frederick Douglass and, you know, Ida B. Wells and, you know, all of the voices that you hear in this episode, you know, of our performers reading those Supreme Court decisions that Bobby Cannavale just sort of lustily, you know, leans into that is so <laughs> misogynistic, you know, it's just, I mean, they're, they're incredible. And, you know, when you when you think about history, like we tend to think about history, like, well, we knew the outcome, but they didn't know the outcome. We're making history right now. We have no idea what the outcome is going to be. You know, so if, if you can go back to that moment and live in that moment um, with these voices, then then you can really get at the tension and, and you know, the burden that a lot of these folks were carrying. Um, and that to me is fascinating. Um, so, you know, making those stories contemporary, making them feel contemporary was something that came somewhat naturally to me. Um, I, I was always into theater. Uh, so, you know, being a little theatrical with it, uh, you know, 
um, having people come in and then directed by someone like Kenny Leon, who, you know, is, is a master of the theater. Um, you know, I like that was a special joy and, you know, bringing all of those things together, um, felt very natural, uh, for me, uh, in, in this kind of storytelling, you know, I'm, 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 uh, black identified. I was raised, uh, as a black kid, I grew up black, uh, but you know, in Briano, I'm, I'm a black Irish, Italian, Baptist, Catholic Jew, you know, and I have all of those things in me. And, you know, I, so like the 14th amendment is the one story that brings all of that stuff together, uh, and allows me to connect that story in a way that I had never been able to connect it before. Mm. So this, this was very organic for me. <laughs> um, how, I got to ask, since I know it's in your bio, how did you get involved with Oprah Winfrey and what's she like? Oh, she's remarkable. Uh, it, you know, it's been years since I was there. Um, uh, I left ABC uh, to go uh, produce for her show uh, and do special a couple of special events as well uh, in the mid-90s um, when she was expanding the notion of, of what a talk show could be mm. and uh you know and, and trying to focus on things that were more positive and um and it was an incredible experience i learned so much in the one season that i was there but i, I wrote with her i you know we did a couple of specials together and i i really um you know that is is one of those you know, training grounds that, uh, you know, has informed my work ever since. Hmm. Incredible. And my last question is about something that you just recently dropped, which is a short on YouTube called White Fatigue, which you White can fatigue, find, yeah. find on YouTube. Tell me about what that's about. You know, uh, last year when we were reckoning with the various pandemics we were facing. Um, uh, Josh Norton over at Big Star, uh, this really talented uh, uh, animation company uh, here in New York. Uh, he gave me a call and said that he wanted to do something to address, uh, you know, the, the racial uh, uh, unrest that was going on. And, I was already worried about how it would lose steam. I've never in my lifetime seen such diverse, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, participation in uh, rallies and protests as I had seen last year. It was, it was really remarkable. Um, but I was worried that it wouldn't last because that's just the history of these things. And, you know, um, so we decided to do a short animated piece um, about white fatigue and what happens when uh, there's intense white interest uh, on the part of people who don't believe in white supremacy, who might even fight white supremacy, but at a certain point become overwhelmed with life, with exhaustion, with, you know, t being tired of the fight. Um, and step back and then white supremacy wins. And that has been the ebb and flow of American history, uh, from the very start. And so we did a three and a half minute animated piece about it, uh, 
trying to implore people not to give up. Hmm. Incredible. Well, that's something you should check out. And Robe Embriano is the creator and executive producer of Amend, the Fight for America, streaming now on Netflix. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining me today in the Nexus. <laughs> uh, all right. It's been a really special joy. Thank you, man. <laughs> and we will be right back. The first results of the 2020 census are out, and there is one clear message to take away. The rate of growth in the United States is slowing way down. There are 331 million people in America, according to the census. That's up only 7.4% since 2010, the second smallest decade growth since the census began in 1790. The slowest rate of growth was in the Great Depression 1930s, when the nation grew in population by only 7.3%. That's roughly half of the 13.2% rate of growth in the 1990s. Most states showed slowdowns in growth during the 2010s. The fastest growing states were Utah, Idaho, Texas, North Dakota, and Nevada. There were three states with negative growth, something that didn't happen at all in the 90s. Those states now are West Virginia, which dropped in population by 3%, followed by Mississippi and Illinois. California is important to watch here. It still grew, but only by 6.1%, and that slow rate of growth compared to other states is why for the first time in its history, it's losing a congressional seat. California is still by far the largest state in the union, yet the runaway congressional growth it once enjoyed has come to an end, at least for now. Don't ever count out California and its resilience. The other states losing seats are Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. The states that are gaining seats are Texas, which picks up two seats in Congress, along with Florida, Colorado, Montana, Oregon, and North Carolina. Quite interesting to me is that Sunbelt states now comprise 62% of the nation's population. 50 years ago, that region was at 48%. The Sunbelt is said to be comprised of the South and West parts of the United States. In the 2010s, the South grew 10% and the West grew 9 far outpacing the Midwest at 3% and the Northeast at 4%. That is a distinct shift in America. How about Washington, D.C., huh? For decades, D.C. was losing residents to white flight and urban decay, but the district started coming back in the 2000s and 5.2% growth, but tripled that in the 2010s with 14.6% growth. Wow. Thanks to the housing crash of the Great Recession, Millennials flocked to D.C. to snap up lower-cost housing, and the city experienced a resurgence. When the rest of the city's data are released later this year, I expect to see lots of cities rebounding, just like Washington, D.C. has done. This is all to say that this story may be legitimate if the census results are legitimate. There are lots of anecdotal reasons to believe that a multitude of Americans were undercounted. Whether it's people who refuse to be part of some government-run authoritarian outfit like the census, or immigrants who were afraid to speak to census takers for fear of being reported to ICE, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think this may not be accurate. 
The census attempts to account for this by using a predictive model to estimate everyone. But in a way, that's what this is, an estimation. My sense is the country is undercounting Hispanic residents in a profound way. I think the anti-government types are a factor too, but in a smaller way. I'll be waiting for the next wave of census data and we'll have further analysis then. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide and sign up for my Substack newsletter at artswift.substack.com. That's artswift.substack.com. Thank you for listening and be well. Be well.